Hello and welcome to Restoration Church's Teaching of the Week. If this is your first time, welcome. So glad that you were able to join us. If you'd like to listen to past teachings or to learn a little bit more about restoration, you can go to restorationaz.org. And with that said, we hope you enjoy this week's teaching from Landon Myers. If you have a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 18. I did something I'm honestly partially regretting last service. Not really, but like partially. I prayed at the end of the gathering that God would give me sight to see where I need to repent. That is a terrifying prayer because God answers those prayers. So I, know, I now know that's, that's coming in my life. It was worth it and he'll show up and it will be good. But that's our topic today is repentance. I kind of often talk with us about how the church is often known as being agitatingly hypocritical and astonishingly boring. If you, if you watch TV shows, movies, etc., in our culture, non-Christian ones, when like they display a Christian or a church or something of that variety, I can almost guarantee they're going to be like super legalistic, rule-following, deathly boring people. That's how they'll be portrayed. Or just unbelievably judgmental and often hypocritical. And it's funny. And do you know why it's funny? Because we all know that there's a whole lot of truth packed into it. That's the only thing that makes something funny. And that's so sad. To to think that uh, God's plan for the world to know him and his goodness and love. We just kind of sang this song of there's no place I'd rather be. Set a fire. We want more of the good of God, which is so true. Yet when the world looks at the church, so often what the world sees is real boring and real judgmental and hypocritical. And that just has to change. And I'm convinced that it changes in two ways, two things the scriptures call us to again and again. One is throwing really great parties. So the church has to learn to throw really great parties. Frequently, oftenly, oftenly is not a word. (laughs) Quantity, quality, all of the above, do it. I told you, I'm I'm just kind of dumb. I was gonna blame that on pain meds, but it's not true. The second thing we as a church need to do, other than throw great parties oftenly, is... Here's what today's about. Repent. We need to get so good at practicing repentance. And that's a little scary, but it matters. And so that's what we're going we're gonna to talk about this morning. Repentance. Scott, I apologize in advance. I'm going to go all out of order here. So repentance is really two things. Part one is recognition. Part two is return. There's two ingredients when it comes to repenting. It's kind of the inverse, if you will, of forgiveness. Forgiveness is forgiving somebody for something they've done to you, harm they've caused you. Repentance is recognizing that you've harmed somebody else and choosing to deal with that. So the two parts are number one, recognition, and number two, a return. You're recognizing that you're not living into God's good design for a specific area of life. And then the return is returning to what God's good design is in that specific area of life. To be even more specific, recognition is a verbal or written confession of where you missed the target of God's good design. That could be in your marriage, 
could be in how you parent, how you speak to people, how you are generous or not with your finances. It could be with your sexuality. It could be with anything. But it's where we've missed God's good design. We recognize that and, and recognize that it's harmed somebody. Then the return is a return simply to God's good design in that area of life. Here, here's kind of a, a simple formula of what this can look like. Four parts, if you don't know how to repent in this recognition and return. Number one is this. What I did, so you're communicating and writing or uh, verbal. And honestly, like the more harm you caused, the higher I would recommend you write it. And then maybe you communicate it verbally, but writing it is always going to help. What I did, the more specific you are, even if there's pain in it, is helpful because you're acknowledging to the person that you're repenting to, confessing to, I understand that I harmed you. I'm not taking it lightly. I see, I feel, and maybe I can do something about it. We'll get to that in a minute. Maybe not, but the more specific you are, you're saying I've put work into understanding that what I did, and then B, is not the way it should be. Meaning there's a creator, there's a maker, and he made life to be a certain way, marriage to be a certain way. There's a certain way we should treat people. There's a certain way we should parent and not parent. There's a certain way we should interact with our neighbors, love, seeking the best interest of others. So part one, what I did, specifically as possible, is not the way it was meant to be. It's not the way it should be. And then part three is so simple and so hard. I am sorry. These are three of the most powerful words just in the world. I can't tell you how often I hear from people, like any time fatherhood and the wounds that fathers have caused their children, especially adult children that talk to me about this, I can't tell you the impact of it. And if a father would get good at saying, I love you or I'm proud of you, those are a couple sets of three words that are unbelievably powerful. A third, though, I am sorry. It is unbelievably significant and powerful and moving. What I did, as specifically as possible, is not the way it should be. I am sorry. And then lastly, I am committed to giving Jesus space in my life to help me be human the way I was made to be in this area. That sounds really wordy and lengthy, and it's not great communication. I agree. I did it though on purpose, here's why. Our tendency is to go, hey, what I did was wrong. It's not the way it should be. I'm sorry, and I'm going to now make it better. And have you heard people say that? Hey, I'm sorry, I will do better. Guess what often happens? They don't do any better. Have you been the one to say, hey, what I did was wrong, and I'm sorry, and I will make it better, and then you don't make it any better? This is the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the beauty of us following Jesus, that the fourth step is unique. It's not that I'm now going to be better. It's that I'm now going to depend on Jesus who can change my heart. And from the inside out, real change will actually begin to happen. And that's different than any other religion. That's different than any other promise. It's not that I can do better on my own power or my own effort. It's that I can lay my control down. And when I do that... Jesus begins to move and work in my life. This is repentance, recognition, and return. The, the Hebrew word shuv means to return to God's good intent in any area, and it's powerful. Okay, now we're going to look at the life of Jesus. 
Luke chapter 18, read with me in uh, verse 35. As Jesus drew near Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging. Here's this man. It's not the first day that he has sat on this road begging. He goes there most likely every day to beg because it's a commonly traversed road. And I kind of just color it in for my, myself here as I read this story. It's one of my favorites in the scriptures. And here's this blind man sitting down on the side of the road. And I imagine him with this intuition from his other senses. He hears the carts going by. He hears the animals in the carts, the commerce, the trading, the business that's happening. And I imagine that he gets a little bit jealous. Maybe he gets angry at God because he can hear what he does not have. Here's the relationships, the transactions, and he knows that those are not his. What he's left to do is not be eye to eye with people, but rather as he sits and begs, his eye level is with their knees because there's no other way for him to be provided for in this culture. So the dust of other people's lives settles on his head and all he can do is sit in that dust and beg day after day after day. Verse 36, hearing a crowd passing by, there's enough of a commotion that he knows something is different. He inquired what this meant. He goes, this is not normal. What's happening? They said, Jesus, the Nazarene is passing by. I want to just, just pause there for a second. He's going to do something next. Just the fact that the presence of Jesus was going to be near him led him to immediate action. That's really intriguing. He knew that the presence of God was going to be there and that led him to do something. Verse 38, so he called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. I can kind of just picture that he's good at using his voice at this point. He's used to exclaiming, yelling, getting people's attention as he's been begging on this road for years. Then those in front of him told him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. It's intriguing in this moment, the presence of the other people there was a presence that sought to push him down, to keep him seated in the dust. They told him, shut up. This isn't about you. This isn't your moment. Your story doesn't matter enough right now. There's something bigger and better. There's someone bigger and better in this moment. So sit quietly where you belong. The presence of others did not seek what was in his best interest in this moment. <clears throat> but look what happens here. Jesus stopped. Oh, those are two beautiful words in the Gospels. Jesus stopped. Think about this. The almighty God of the universe who is on a road to hang on a cross, to rise from the grave, to literally save the world. There's crowds following him. All kinds of things are happening. And what? Jesus stopped for one dusty man sitting on a dusty road for one story, for one person, for one set of troubles, for one request. Jesus stopped. One of the great lies of the enemy is that Jesus won't stop for you. Jesus stopped. Jesus is still stopping. He's still capable. He listens. He cares. He knows. Don't miss that moment. Jesus stopped and then commanded because he is a man of the utmost power. Jesus stopped and commanded that the man be brought to him. When he drew near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? 
Lord, he said, I want to see. Receive your sight, Jesus told him. Your faith has healed you. Instantly, hold on to that word, instantly he could see. And he began to follow Jesus, glorifying God. All the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Let me reread this verse, 43. Instantly he could see and he began to follow. The presence of Jesus miraculously changed this man's life. He gave him sight and that led to a whole new course for his life. He got up from his dusty seat and began to follow Jesus where he went next. This man's faith is is pretty remarkable. And I think he knew something. He lived out something that we often fail to do. This man expected that the presence of Jesus could actually change his life in that immediate moment. So he acted that way. When's the last time that you actually expected the presence of Jesus to change your life now? To change your life in the immediate? I think so often we've actually been taught to treat our relationship with Jesus, the presence of God, kind of like it's a retirement fund. It's your 401k. Put a little in here. Put a little in there. Just keep doing. You're going to watch it build over time. And then one day, long, long, long time from now, depending on how old you are, you'll pull out from that. You'll receive from it. There will be the reward. But it's, it's in the distant future. We treat Jesus this way. When is the last time that this word, instant, not because we're, we're just expecting God to do whatever we want. He's not a microwave God. And you go, oh yeah, I like that. Let's make it happen now. No. But when's the last time you allowed Jesus to instantly impact your life now? Not you asked him to do something like a genie, but you allowed Jesus to just reach right into the heart and change your life in this very moment. How incredible. This man's life was changed in this moment. Watch what happens next. It's actually the same exact story two times. Ready? Jesus then entered Jericho, I imagine with this blind man following him, and was passing through. There was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Let's pause really quick. Maybe you're familiar with this. Maybe you're not. He was rich because he was a chief tax collector. He was rich because as a tax collector, he was employed, in essence, by the Roman government to take taxes from the Jewish people. And what he would do to get rich, what was the common practice, is he would take more than what was required. It's kind of a great gig for him. It's like a set your own salary. I want more money, I take more money. Pretty simple. He's a chief tax collector and he's rich. The blind man that just received sight is following them as well. There's a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector and he was rich. He was trying to see. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but he was not able to see because of the crowd since he was a short man. So running ahead, he climbed up a sycamore tree to see Jesus since he was about to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down because today I must stay at your house. Notice the urgency. So Zacchaeus quickly came down and welcomed Jesus joyfully. All who saw it began to complain. He's gone to lodge with a sinful man. But Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, I'll give half of my possessions to the poor, Lord. And if I have extorted anything from anyone, I'll pay back four times as much. Today salvation has come to this house, Jesus told him, because he too is a son of Abraham. 
For the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. See what happened there. This man, Zacchaeus, a rich chief tax collector, was just as blind as the blind man on the road right before. And this man, too, was given sight by Jesus. Different kind of sight, a different kind of blindness, but for all of his life, Zacchaeus looked out, and when he saw people, he did not see people. He looked out, and when he saw a person, what he saw was an opportunity to get richer. He was blind to their actual stories, to their actual families, to their, their hurts and questions, the things going on in their world. He did not care. Or if he did care, he didn't care enough to actually do something about it. He was still willing to reach out and grasp for his own. And it worked really well for him. He got rich in this way. Until what happened? The presence of Jesus changed everything. The presence of Jesus immediately healed him. The presence of Jesus gave him sight to see when before he had been blind to what was actually happening in his life and the lives of those around him. Look at these four quick verses. Verse five, when Jesus came to the place, that means something's gonna happen. He looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down because today I must stay at your house. So Zacchaeus quickly came down and welcomed him joyfully. All who saw it began to complain. He's gone to lodge with a sinful man. Why? They knew how blind he was. They knew he turned his eye. He didn't care about people. There was an evil that had grown in his heart to grasp only whatever would lead to selfish gain. So they're almost furious with Jesus. How could Jesus go be with that guy, with this one who steals from us? But Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, look, I'll give half of my possessions to the poor, Lord, and if I have exhorted anything from anyone, I'll pay back four times as much. Immediate change. He immediately goes from blind, relationally, to seeing as God sees. I'm convinced only Jesus can do that. As I stand here, I recognize that in my own life, so often, I am relationally blind. I can harm people with my words, with my actions, with things I do, with things I don't do, unintentionally, intentionally, some small things, some big things, and often I'm too blind to see it. The closer you are to somebody, the more important the relationship, the easier it is actually to be blind to your own weaknesses, failures, the things you take from them. I'm convinced as we're just in this room together, as you think about the relationships you have, there's a really good chance, and I don't mean this harshly, I say it as a we kind of thing, that we struggle in the church as Christians, as followers of Jesus, with a deep relational blindness. We need Jesus to give us sight that leads to repentance, because it doesn't just change our lives change the lives of everybody around us just like it did for Zacchaeus. That's significant. Zacchaeus has this two-part formula with repentance. First, there's recognition. 
He sees as he looks out the people that are complaining. He hears the grumbling. He recognizes that he has not seen them for who they are, beloved children of God. And then he returns to what is good. He sees that he missed the good. Instead of practicing generosity, he practiced, practiced hoarding for himself. But then he returns the good. This is what repentance is. The Hebrew word, as I mentioned, means to return, to come back to a good design from a good father that we sang about earlier. When it comes to repenting to other people that we've all done, like we've, we've harmed others, we have to recognize that we're indebted to those people. When we cause harm, we steal something from them. It might not be like Zacchaeus did, money. It could be an emotional health, could be physical health, could be reputation, could be a lot of different things. We have to actually boldly ask ourselves, in what way am I indebted? What have I taken from the people that I've harmed? Intentionally, unintentionally, or perhaps by things I should have done but chose not to. A couple examples of this that are pretty basic, but will just help us think about it. If five-year-old Jesse steals $20 from his friend Jessica, there's a formula for repentance there. First of all, Jesse needs to recognize the good that he walked against. It's not simply that he did something bad. It's actually, there's a good way of life he chose to ignore. God's good design is actually to practice generosity, not to just not steal. It's further than that. It's deeper. It's to practice generosity. And in stealing, he did the opposite. And so then he needs to return the $20 that he is now in debt Nate and I, as he mentioned, are coaching basketball, and I've had one kid from the year he was a freshman to the year he's a senior now, and I, I love this kid. He's one of the most respectful kids you'll ever meet. He speaks um, often with this, this deep maturity and wisdom, and, and you would think he's an incredibly good listener. I'll, I'll be coaching, and I'll correct something, and I'll say, no, that's not the way that that needs to happen, and he will go, yes, sir. Ooh, I like that. That's good. Let's keep that up. Everybody else should learn this. And then the same mistake will happen. And I'll be like, hey, what are we doing here? And he'll be like, you're right, coach. I'll be like, yes, I know I am. And then the next practice, the same thing will happen. And I will lose my mind. And I'll be like, what is going on? And he'll be like, I'm sorry, coach. That's my bad. And I'll be like, yes, it is. And what I've learned now over the years is that this individual knows the right things to say. Yes, sir. You're right, coach. That's my fault. He always has the right thing to say. But it's not accompanied by a visible change. And so what I've also learned is that his words don't mean anything. And I've told him that. I said, hey, until you start to show your actions what you're, and, and aware, in a way that parallels what your words say, I don't, your words don't mean a thing to me. You're going to have to learn that in life. Repentance needs to have recognition verbal or written, and then a return to what is good. Without the return, it's not relevant. In fact, it's probably just adding insult to injury. Second example, after Nate nudged my rib a little bit, and I had the brilliant idea to go to the chiropractor, while I was there, I parked on the side of the road where there's a whole lane for parking. And right now, this just kind of adds to the, the comedy of it. My truck's been in the shop for like, 
six weeks. Don't know what's happening there. So I'm driving my, my grandpa's car that has a veteran handicap license plate. And so I kind of figure like, oh, this is going to be a little safer. No one's going to mess with that. They should honor me as I'm driving my grandpa's vehicle here. And I get out of the, the chiropractor and the like case on the back of the mirror on the driver's side is just gone. Completely missing. Someone had hit the mirror and they just drove off. Repentance for that person would be recognizing that it's not good to damage somebody's car and then leave. That's recognition. The return would be to come back and pay for the damage done because they're kind of indebted to me and now I'm indebted to my grandpa. Those are simple. Here's one that's a little bit more complicated, but I'm sure will be kind of familiar. Larry and Jerry work together, and, and when Larry and Jerry are together, Larry says really nice things about Jerry. But when Larry's not face-to-face -face with Jerry, Larry tells a whole different story to their coworkers about Jerry, and he misrepresents little details that over time create a whole different picture about how Jerry is as a coworker, and it begins to impact his career significantly because what Larry has done is stolen the good reputation that Jerry had. He's actually taken something non-physical, non-financial away from him. And now there's a debt, and there's a lack of justice. And what actually should happen now, if Larry was to repent, is to recognize it, to verbally confess that. But then what does he need to do? Return that reputation. It's going to be costly. You know what it's going to cost him? His own reputation. Because he now needs to go to the people that he distorted this other guy's image with and say, hey, I, I messed up. And in that process, his own reputation would be lost. But that's the justice of repentance. That would be painful, but it's what is good and right and whole. Again, repentance is a two-part formula. Recognition, we need to actually speak it or write it. And then the return to what is good. When it comes to repentance, two words that... I think come to mind that need to be true for us is quickly and consistently. The quicker that we enter this return process, this repentance, the easier it's going to be. The longer you wait, the bigger the gap, the more the pain, the larger the debt. And consistently. Trust me, you and I both have plenty of opportunities to practice repentance. What we might not have is the awareness to see that. And that's where it all comes back to Jesus. Zacchaeus had no interest until the presence of Jesus changed his life, until he went from blind to having sight in repenting. But as soon as the presence of Jesus was near, that changed how he saw people. That changed how he saw his own words. It changed how he saw his own actions. It changed the relationships that he had, and it did it immediately. It's really intriguing. If you read uh, the book of Jonah in the Old Testament, there's a lot going on. But one of the primary themes is actually repentance. You have these enemies of God who God commissions Jonah to go tell to repent in this place called Nineveh. And they actually listen but deeply kind of wound into the theme of this book, four chapters long, is the fact that God will not let Noah not repent. 
God continues to chase and pursue Noah and give him opportunity and opportunity and opportunity and gentle instruction and then not so gentle instruction on repenting because it's best for Jonah and everybody around him. If you are not practicing repentance frequently, one of three things is probably happening. First is perhaps you're not actually experiencing the presence of Jesus. Because where the presence of Jesus is, he moves and he works and his spirit speaks and we will listen. And here's the crazy thing is you could come in here and sit in a chair and sing some songs and listen to me or someone else and not experience the presence of Jesus because your heart's closed. You could study the scriptures and know them inside and out and take a test and, and get an A plus and still not experience the presence of Jesus. The Pharisees did that. It says that the demons know the, the word of God really well. They have all kinds of spiritual disciplines and practices and yet not experience the presence of Jesus because it's a matter of the heart. So if you're not being compelled to repent often, are you closing your heart off to the presence of Jesus? That's a question worth considering. Two other options. One is you just lack self-awareness, which in our culture we're really good at. You are perhaps unintentionally blind to the people around you. Maybe that was Zacchaeus, maybe not. It's a pride issue, which means we care mostly about ourselves, so we don't think about how we act, we only think about how people act in relation to us. The other option is that pride has forced you to be conveniently blind to your own sin and mistakes. You've kind of intentionally had this ignorance is bliss mentality. This is why I prayed to end last service what I prayed, which is a little scary because God comes through on those prayers. Give me, give us eyes to see where we've messed up. The beauty, the beauty of Jesus, the beauty in his power as king over this entire world, the beauty in his loving sacrifice on the cross means that we have no debt to pay back to him. He has completed that process. We are fully forgiven. He doesn't expect us to pay that back because we can't. We have nothing to do. There is nothing we can do to earn back God's love. It's just given freely. And the beauty of that is that the church should not be a people that pretend to have it all together. We don't have to be a people that pretend to be quote unquote good, to avoid the bad things and do the good things. We actually can be this refreshing breath of air to the culture around us that only cancels each other and never admits wrong. We can admit we're wrong. That's the whole premise of Christianity, that we follow Jesus because he's enough and I am not, that we follow Jesus because I can't, but I know that he can. Can you imagine a world where we actually, as the church, repented frequently? There's immense beauty and potential in that. That's how you change the church's reputation from astonishingly boring and agitatingly hypocritical. It's not by being better. It's by repenting more. And guess what? When we do that and we hand it over to Jesus, he will begin to work in our heart. That's why we're going to take communion in a minute because it's about his work and not ours. But we do have to open up our hearts to allow his presence to work within us.
I want to close with Matthew chapter 5, beginning in, in verse 13. Jesus says this, You are the salt of the earth, <clears throat> but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled on by men. Jesus is co communicating, teaching to people following him here. Then he continues to say, You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Songs are written based on this passage. Books have been written based on this passage, and it's powerful. And we think about this light that is meant to shine to draw people near to Jesus. And I think what we often think about is the good deeds, which it says, that we should go do so that people will turn to Christ. That matters. We should evangelize all of this stuff. But I'm convinced that maybe the greatest, most powerful, shining, bright light that the church can let the world see is nothing more than repentance. Because it tells the world around us, once again, I already said it, but I'm going to say it again. It's not about us. We mess up all the time. And guess what? When we share that with someone, they're not surprised. They know. They're not buying your act. The more we're just open with it, the more we actually open the door to say the power and beauty and forgiveness and might of Jesus is real and it's significant. And if we just let his presence work just you wait because he will now, i don't say this lightly i actually mean this the hope of the world is repentance because of what jesus has done and is doing the hope of your neighborhood the one that you live in drive by walk in wave the people in if you're friendly with your neighbors hopefully you know them if not hopefully you're in our hospitality practice the hope of your neighborhood is repentance because of what Jesus has done and is doing. The hope of your household, the hope of your marriage, if you're married, is repentance. If you look at the, the relationships in this world, in our culture, that are the strongest and healthiest, it's not because they just get along. It's not because they have a lot in common together. It's not an absence of conflict. In fact, it's probably the, the presence of healthy conflict. If there's like one characteristic that I've seen mark healthy relationships, it's not chemistry. It is repentance. It's an ability to say, what I did, as specifically as possible, is not the way it was meant to be. I am sorry, and I'm going to give space to let Jesus form me into the man or the woman that he has made me to be. And then guess what? Jesus does his thing and it happens. We can keep trying. It's not going to get better. But when we let go and let Jesus work, beautiful things, not easy things. Repentance is not easy. Beautiful things happen. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you give us eyes to see. Again, I ask for your wisdom that you give us sight to see people as you see them, that you give us a mirror to reflect on the ways that we've harmed others, to see how we're indebted to them, to make it right. God, I pray that you fill us not with shame and condemnation, but an urging with the power of your spirit 
to repent and to embrace the, the freedom and joy that comes with the reality that you said we're not responsible, you are. So in that, we have this freedom to, to operate in the spirit with your power. May you move, may you work, may your kingdom and will come and be done in our homes, in our workplaces, as a church family, in the greater Prescott area, wherever we all live, may you be known. Give us eyes to see. May your presence be known. In Jesus' name, amen. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us. Once again, we are Restoration Church in beautiful Prescott, Arizona, and we are so thankful that you were able to tune in. If this is your first time, welcome. Uh, jump over to restorationaz.org to listen to past teachings or to learn a little bit more about who we are and what we're about. Um, and if you have questions or if you'd like to connect with us, um, go ahead and hit that contact tab. We'd love to connect with you. And uh, until next time, remember, Jesus is the only one who is trustworthy always, no matter the moment. So press on as we continue to practice the way of Jesus.